Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Saturday, July the 1st, 2023, new month, but old news dominating the headlines. Ukraine continues to preoccupy us, um, particularly in the glimpse of what the New York Times calls the mutiny of potentially a post-Putin Russia. Will there be peace? A lot of people are doubtful. The war now has been going on for more than a year. It's miserable from everyone's point of view, certainly the people fighting, particularly uh, the people in Ukraine. And America is more and more involved, uh, the CIA apparently, according to the Times, visited Kiev in June for meetings with the Ukrainian uh, prime minister. So things look pretty miserable on that front. Meanwhile, the crisis um, of American democracy goes on. Uh, the news today from CNN is that Donald Trump pressured the Arizona government after the 2020 election to overturn his defeat. Seems a similar narrative to what happened um, in Georgia uh, and uh, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis are competing for what some people look at as the anti-democratic authoritarian vote. They're both in Philadelphia at the moment um, and they're competing in terms of uh, LGBTQ issues. Uh, DeSantis seems to be even outflanking Trump on the right on that front. And a lot of people have wondered whether we can learn from history about these two crises, parallel, simultaneous, perhaps related crises of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the crisis of democracy in America. And uh, two longtime Holocaust scholars, uh, Leonard Grobe and John Roth, have a new book out about this, The Holocaust, Ukraine, and Endangered American Democracy. And I'm thrilled that um, John Roth is joining us. We were going to have Lenny as well, but uh, technology conspired against him. However, it's great to have John uh, Roth, John K. Roth, co-author of Warnings. He's worked a lot with uh, Leonard Grobe in the past. They've written books together as Holocaust scholars, experts on the Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict and on torture. And uh, John is joining us from the eastern slope of the Cascade Mountains, a delightful spot uh, uh, on the west coast of the United States. Uh, John, welcome and congratulations on this new book, Warnings. Um, what do you and Lenny say about what we can and can't learn from the Holocaust about what's happening today in Ukraine and this supposed crisis of American democracy. Thank you, Andrew, for having me on your very distinguished show. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and an honor. I'm sorry, Lenny Grob, my co-author, is hamstrung by some technology problems and, and can't be on the call with me. Uh, he would have important things to say in our conversation. I, I won't try to speak for him, but I'll try to represent some of his thinking and, and what we have to say going forward. I thought your lead-in to the program today was a perfect setup for uh, the book, uh, Warnings, The Holocaust, Ukraine, and Endangered American Democracy. You featured uh, 
insights about the war in Ukraine, which uh, started up just about a month after uh, Lenny and I started writing this book. We weren't planning uh, to write about Ukraine when we first started. We were going to focus on um, more domestic-oriented issues in the United States, uh, looking at them through the lens of the Holocaust, which I'll get to in a minute. But then the Putin invaded Ukraine, and uh, we realized we no, we have to write about that as well because uh, his invasion uh, is an, is endangering democracy in Ukraine and. Uh, implicitly, if not explicitly, it's endangering democracy in other parts of the world as well. So we had to incorporate that into our uh, discussion in the book. Then you also uh, focused on recent news that's happening in the United States, and there's a ton of it about the aftermath of uh, the claim that the 2020 election was stolen in the United States and that uh, Joe Biden is an illegitimate president and that uh, Donald Trump should be in the White House. And uh, the issues that are swirling in Republican politics around that uh, had our attention in the book as we wrote uh, and also the, the uh, focus on the 2024 election, which is uh, really where the book is, is pointed and heading. So you asked me in particular, what, what do we learn by... Uh, viewing all of this through the lens of the Holocaust. And, and I'll say just a word about that and then stop and let you follow up with it. Our point in the book is not that the United States is uh, on the precipice of committing a genocide like what happened in Nazi Germany uh, in the uh, 1940s. But what uh, Lenny and I have learned from you know decades of study of uh, Nazi Germany and the Holocaust is that, uh, the, that the disaster that we call the Holocaust didn't emerge out of the blue. It had, it had antecedents and a context behind it. And that context and those antecedents took place largely in the 1930s, leading up to and including the uh, rise of Hitler as uh, the leader of uh, Nazi Germany. And the warnings that we see have to do, uh, looking back from the Holocaust to the conditions that led to it. And one of the fundamental ones, and I'll, I'll end with this point, is that Hitler was uh, hell-bent on undermining the democracy that had existed in Weimar Germany, the, the, the regime that existed after World War I and before Hitler came to power. Hitler despised democracy. He even thought that it was a kind of Jewish uh, invention uh, or something that Jews in particular were wanting to support. And so his uh, initial uh, thrust into uh, the leadership of, of the uh, state of Germany when he came to power in January of 1933 was to move as rapidly as he could to uh, destroy and undermine what was left of democracy in Nazi Germany. And that was one of the preludes that led to worse things that happened. So in our book, we're arguing that uh, when democracy is threatened, nothing good is likely to come of that, uh, especially if the threats mount to such a point that democracy is weakened and perhaps even eliminated. 
I wonder, though, what, John, the point is of including, I, I take your point that you're suggesting that we're not on the brink, you know, even in the worst case scenario, America isn't on the brink of another Holocaust of millions of people being killed. Um, but you could say the same about all sorts of other events in history. Um, and certainly the crisis of democracy around the world doesn't seem to me, at least, maybe I'm not an expert, to be that connected with the Holocaust. I mean, Trump would claim that he's not against the Jews. He has a Jewish son-in-law, for better or worse. Uh, in fact, there's a crisis in Israel with Benjamin Netanyahu, who, of course, is, is the head of the Zionist state. Um, and other critics of democracy, illiberal Democrats, as they call themselves, from Orban uh, to Bolsonaro to Duterte, a, a lot of them are indifferent, agnostic, if you like, to, to the Jewish question. So I'm still not clear on how you as Holocaust scholars connect what's happening in the 2020s with what happened in the 1940s. Yeah. Uh, well, let me mention that our, our main point of connection is, in, is to the 1930s, uh, leading up to uh, the outbreak of war and uh, the genocide that took place uh, in the 1940s in, uh, in Europe. So here's the, um, here's the link from us. And this is a little bit idiosyncratic, Lenny and I would agree. We've spent our lives uh, researching, writing, teaching about the Holocaust. And one of the things that is common uh, when we do that kind of work, especially when we're working with students in a classroom, is uh, sort of, well, so what? Why, are we, why do we bother studying about this? It's, it's of historical interest, to be sure. But the question that we uh, focus on is well. What what is what are some takeaways from this? Are there some things that we actually may learn and uh, see in clearer perspective about our own lives, our own circumstances by looking at this history? And when Lenny and I uh, were talking about writing this book, uh, the following things came, kept coming up. We were looking at what was going on in the country. And we kept saying to ourselves, you know, this reminds us of things that we have spent our lives studying and thinking about. And what we were reminded of in particular were events that were taking place in the 1930s, where Hitler came to power, as I mentioned earlier, with the intention to destroy democracy. But how did he come to power? He came to power through lies, through um, antisemitism, through uh, 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 the advancement of a philosophy that was racist in character, that had supremacy of uh, the so-called Aryan people in, in its uh, uh, center stage area. So Lenny and I see these things, we're reminded of these things, and then we began you know, thinking about what's going on presently in the United States. And as I said, we're not suggesting that we're on the brink of the Holocaust in the United States, far from it, uh, we hope. But we are in a situation that has eerie kinds of echoes and reverberations between uh, what we've spent our lives studying uh, in uh, Europe in the 1930s and what we're seeing happening in the uh, United States today. Now, other people may have a different take on right. it. Right. I mean, you, some people might say, well, because you're Holocaust scholars, everything to you looks like the 1930s. Uh, if you have a hammer, everything looks 
like a nail. You, you talk about the 1930s. You talk about American democracy, too. Are, are you comparing, you know, this, the Nazis and Hitler gets thrown around all the time. There's the old joke on the Internet that you can't have a, an argument on online uh, without within, I think, six minutes, someone accusing somebody else of being a Nazi or Hitler. Uh, from the right, uh, the, the woke movement gets accused of being Nazi. From the left, Trump and DeSantis get accused of being Nazi. Are they really, John? I mean, I know you believe there are, but I'm still not convinced. Are there really concrete analogies between the rise of the Nazi party in the 1930s, the coming to power of, of German uh, of German Nazism in the 30s, and what's happening in America in the 2020s? Well, uh, first of all, I want to make clear that we're not a, we're not calling people Nazis in the United States. There are people who will think of themselves as as being neo Nazis. They they display the uh, emblems and symbols of uh, of that movement, and in a way are seeking to rehabilitate it. But that's not our our argument. Our argument. Although, to be clear, I mean let, let let's be honest, John. Um, the subtitle of your book is the Holocaust, and it was the Nazis who perpetrated the Holocaust. Yes, Nazis perpetrated the Holocaust, but what we're interested in exploring is how did they do that? The, the fact that they were Nazis didn't automatically lead to the Holocaust. They, the, the Nazi party, Hitler, they had to do all sorts of things to gain control of German society. And uh, so what we're focused on is how... How did that happen? What were the, the steps that they took? Mm. And that's where we're seeing some similarities between what took place there and what has happened here and what might happen here. So tell me more. Andrew, go for a minute to the to what in the in the United States is often referred to as the big lie. Authoritarian leaders traffic in big lies. Putin has done this in Ukraine. Hitler did it in Germany. I mean, all the way, going all the way back to the notion that uh, Jews stabbed Germany in the back and that's why they lost World War One. I. I mean, it's it, it, the whole the whole Nazi program pivoted around lies, big lies of one kind or another. So there's a phenomenon. The, the issue of the big lie, it's common in authoritarian regimes, and it has been very pre prevalent with regard to Donald Trump and his politics, which is continuing to this very moment as he seeks to lie his way out of the uh, indictments that have, have come forward and uh, more may be coming. So there's one example. The, we're, we're seeing a big lie that led to uh, Hitler's power in Germany and the phenomenon of the big lie, which is common in authoritarian regimes, is present here in the United States. That's a warning. That's our argument. But hasn't the, aren't been, there always, John, yeah, I take your point, but aren't there always lies in politics? I mean, even in America, the... We've done so many shows on this, and you don't need me to lecture you on it. But the American, the American Republic was founded on the idea of freedom and democracy. 
whilst they maintain this appalling institution of slavery. So every society, whether it's authoritarian or democratic, they're always lies. Yes, lying is, is part of, um, I suppose you could say it's part of human experience. Um, we, we, can, we can talk about, uh, about the power of that uh, in a moment, but there's something that is peculiar and distinctive about uh, what's being called the big lie in American political life today, which has led, mo mo there's lots of lying, but not all lies in American life lead to the attempt to overthrow an election, a presidential election. That's different. And the big lie there is that if that had succeeded, uh, you know, our democracy and the rule of law and a lot of other things would be very much precarious. But not all lies, I, I, I take your point, uh, John, but not all lies lead to the Holocaust either. Aren't you making the Holocaust almost like a, a consequence of political lying, which sounds perhaps as if you're almost cheapening in it, making it universal when it was a a unique event in world history, a consequence of stuff that had never happened before and hopefully will never happen again. Well, let me, let me make a distinction here. I'm a philosopher by academic training and, and profession, and there's a distinction, a distinction that is often used that is helpful between a necessary condition and a sufficient condition. Lying in Germany was not sufficient to produce Auschwitz. It took lots and lots of things. But if there hadn't been big lies going on about who Jews are and what they do and why they are to be looked upon as uh, a pestilential plague, the, the seedbed that would have led to the idea that it would be a good thing to be rid of them completely wouldn't have happened. So it's, it's, a, it's a, a matter of what are, are, what, what are the complex conditions that lead to an outcome where any one that you may point out may not be sufficient to do it, but if, if you get enough of them together, then you can get an outcome that is <clears throat> immensely destructive. Uh, I take your point on, 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 on all the, this cascade, this, this sort of narrative of lying. But coming back to the crisis in democracy in America, for example, um, DeSantis <laughs> and Trump, as I mentioned at the beginning, they're in Philadelphia, I think, today or yesterday, uh, talking about L... GBTQ rights and, and all the rest of it. We might not like what they're saying, but they're not perpetuating the kind of lies that the Nazis articulated about the Jews, are they? No, and that's not my that's not our point in the book. We're we're not we're not saying that what is happening in the United States is uh, Nazism revisited. What we're saying is that some of the ingredients and techniques and power moves and arguments and uh, attempts to arouse emotion that were present then.
can be seen in modern guys now. And that's where the warnings are to be found. But can't, uh, again, it's an important and interesting subject, John. Can't some of the ingredients be found everywhere? I mean, Winston Churchill, for example, was a, was a blatant racist. Um, he, he certainly was no great fan of, of Nazis or Adolf Hitler. He fought against them. Isn't that the point, that if we generalize it too much, then we normalize the Holocaust? No, I, I would resist that uh, that move. Uh, nothing that Lenny and I are writing is normalizing the Holocaust. We are uh, insistent uh, as as longtime scholars of that of that event, that catastrophe, that it has uh, a distinctive uh, singular quality. But it still is the case that the conditions that produced a Holocaust can produce other outcomes that are not a Holocaust, but that are undesirable. And that in the case of the United States would be contrary to what Americans want for our, our country and our nation when we're, I would, and this is how I put it, when we're at our best, when, when we are, are, are defending uh, what's good and right about our, country and its uh, heritage and its legacy. But these people, the people who are perpetuating what you call the big lie in America, they have a vision of America too. They have a, a MAGA philosophy. And they would argue, I think, well, I can't speak on behalf of all of them, but some of them at least would argue that, um, that they're the ones telling the truth. Yes, let me make two points in response to that. I was doing some checking yesterday about uh, what the data shows concerning um, Americans' worries about the future of democracy. And uh, the, the surveys that I was looking at suggest that uh, as we approach the 4th of July in the United States in 2023, somewhere between 60 and 70% of Americans um, are worried about democracy. But the data, when you dig down deeper in it, uh, reveals that uh, more Republicans are worried about the future of democracy than Democrats, which is interesting. Which right, because they, they watch their channels and they're told yeah, that it's the woke crowd who are that, undermining democracy. Which goes to your point that there's a debate about, you know, the future of democracy uh, in the United States right now. And that debate includes what is the proper understanding of what democracy is. And you're correct in pointing out that there would be... Uh, call them for the sake of discussion here, the MAGA Republicans who might have a very different understanding of what democracy should be than say Lenny and I do. And so that, that's a, a, an argument to be made. But when you get to the issue of what's true, which you said, okay, which view, if, if you have competing views, is are these views automatically uh, equivalent in their truth status? Uh, are there are there equal arguments on both sides? Are there, is does the evidence just you know equally distribute so that it's uh, it's a, a relative matter as to who's right and who's wrong? I would argue no. 
I think that uh, what Americans have meant by democracy includes things like uh, the rule of law, fair and free elections, the pursuit of, of justice, um, opposition to uh, racism and white supremacy. And, you know, I, I think there is an argument there that has evidence that favors uh, a view that uh, would be closer to the one that Lenny and I are defending than the view that uh, MAGA Republicans are trying yeah, to Again, I, I take your point, John, but I mean, even... Even Trump at his most deranged, he's not talking as Hitler did about ending democracy. He's not talking about closing the law courts down. He's not talking about stopping elections. Well, I, that, I think that's debatable. Trump, uh, he walked it back, but there was a moment where he talked about suspending the Constitution. He's argued that he, he is rightfully uh, the winner of the 2020 election when there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that that was the case. Even his own judges, again and again and again, have uh, turned down his claims that uh, the election was stolen, that there, that there was a fraud and deception in it. Uh, to the contrary, I think the evidence suggests that uh, Trump himself has engaged in fraud with regard to the claims that he has made. So one of the things that Lenny and I are arguing for very strongly in our book and it goes back to the discussion we've been having about lies, big and small, is that um, the defense of democracy requires defending truth and evidence and inquiry, free inquiry. Um, these are essential ingredients for uh, a robust and healthy democracy, and they're under threat in, in our society right now. It, it ranges everywhere from attempts to uh, ban books, to uh, deny that um, truth is truth. Rudy Giuliani famously said, the truth is not truth. Uh, this, it, this is the road to, uh, to uh, disaster. There is a, a, a book that's about the, the uh, post-Soviet Union uh, situation in Russia that has a wonderful title. It says, nothing is true and everything is possible. And it was written by Peter Pomerantsev, who's, yes. who's an old friend who's been on the show several times. <clears throat> uh, John, let me step back a little bit. Um, as I said, you are a Holocaust scholar, long, long, very distinguished Holocaust scholar. You've written a number of books um, with Lenny. One... Um, uh, on uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, another on uh, religion, the Jewish-Christian-Muslim dialogues, another on um, torture um, with the subtitle Holocaust Scholars Confront Torture. I'm curious, you, you and Lenny have very different backgrounds. You come as a philosopher. Lenny's experience is different. Um, he has a more immediate and personal connection with the Holocaust. How do you and he, do you think, differ in as, as Holocaust scholars, given you're more detached, perhaps philosophically, where he's more engaged because many of his family were murdered by the Nazis? Yeah. Uh, just a word about our relationship. Uh, 
Lenny and I have known each other for probably 30 years, uh, and we have um, we have at least three things that uh, are the glue in our friendship. Um, one is we're both philosophers. We 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 believe in the uh, kind of Socratic method of inquiry, the importance of questions and the importance of dialogue about them. Uh, second, we're uh, people who have uh, invested a lot of our uh, careers in teaching and learning and writing about uh, the Holocaust and other genocides. And then the third thing is we have an interest in uh, interreligious uh, relations, which is why we uh, did that book together on uh, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim. Uh, yeah, it's called uh, uh, en encountering the strange. So, so these are the things that uh, that that bind us together in friendship, and uh, we've written off and on again together, uh, and that's what led to uh, to this book. Uh, I think one of the differences uh, between Lenny and me is, uh, I would say. Uh, Lenny uh, has higher hopes for uh, for dialogue, for uh, uh, steps that lead to uh, mutual respect uh, among people who differ. Uh, and maybe I'm a little harder on uh, the idea that while it's a very, very important to respect uh other people and to defend their right to speak and defend their rights and so on. Uh, I, I emphasize the importance of figuring out who, who should and will hold power, even in a democracy. It's very important. Elections matter, we like to say. So who holds the uh, levers of authority and influence uh, to me, matters a great deal. And I want to support Lenny in saying, yes, we should be engaged with uh, people who we differ with, you know, in dialogue and respect should always be present there. But uh, at the end of the day, I'm concerned about who holds the... Right. Uh, John, next week, I'm actually going to the Braver Angels Convention, appropriately enough, at Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. Uh, Braver Angels are an attempt to... Um, to bring the right and the left together in a in a coherent civic dialogue. Do you believe in groups like this in America? Do you think they can help the current situation? Well, um, uh, Lenny is Jewish, and I'm I'm a Christian. Um, so in in our religious lives, uh, we we see a, a mixture and an ambiguity. On the one hand, we know very well, and the Holocaust testifies to this, that religion can be an immensely divisive and, and even violence-producing uh, sort of affair in uh, human history. Uh, in its better side, it, uh, it has elements that uh, defend real justice and that also encourage uh, relationships between people that are uh, compassionate, uh, hospitable, uh, and caring. And so wherever that impulse is present in religious life, uh, there's, there's always a chance for um, people who disagree and who are different in their outlooks to find uh, not only common ground, but a, a common um, 
feeling of, of mutual humanity and mm. caring for one another. Is that the point, John, of the book? Let, let, you know, I, I articulated my own skepticism, but let's say you're right. Let's say that, um, that an understanding of the 1930s will really help us make sense of, in, of the currently endangered American democracy. What can we learn? What are you arguing in warnings? What are, what are the lessons from history that can address our current crisis? Well, I would say uh, I'll take your question down the path of what do what do Lenny and I think uh, is needed or what could be done uh, to uh, return a robust vigor to democracy uh, in the United States and maybe in other parts of the world, too. Uh, I think that one of the things that, that we're stressing about that is that we, uh, we have to try to uh, bring out from each other what we are when, when we are at our best, when we're at our best. And when we're at our best, I think Americans uh, uh, defend fairness, we defend uh, uh, equality, we oppose racism, we oppose uh, misogyny, we oppose uh, discrimination. And if, if we can cultivate these virtues, and this it, go, it goes back to that, uh, and, and in philosophical ethics, there's a long history here of um, the cultivation of dispositions and uh, characteristics that uh, are, are things that lead to human flourishing. One of the things that, uh, that I've argued strongly in the book is that uh, one of those virtues is uh, truth-telling, not lying about things, but trying as often as we can to speak the truth. And uh, I think the world, the world would be a very different place if people... I, I take your point. I respect the argument. I, I'm curious in the um, Palestine-Israeli conflict, I'm assuming you present in some ways the same argument. But what happens in that situation when all the power is held or, or the vast majority of the power, military, economic and political, is held by one side? The Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict, uh, this is where we really need Lenny because uh, he has done uh, work on the ground uh, in that uh, situation, working uh, to try to produce uh, improved relations, better understanding, uh, even reconciliation between uh, Jews and Palestinians uh, on the ground uh, in the West Bank and other parts of, of Israel. Uh, I think that the tragedy of that situation is that uh, the administration of uh, Israel presently has uh, taken uh, stands that are violating the human rights of Palestinians. I'm still an old-fashioned advocate of a, a two-state solution 
in uh, Israel. Right now, and I, and I take that. I'm not asking. I'm I'm not I'm I'm not suggesting that you should have a political solution to the conflict. My question sure. was more. You you talk about bringing out the best in us, and of course that's a noble ideal and aspiration. No one's going to be critical of you of that. But every situation, including the U.S., I think in in 2023, is made up of people with them without power. Uh, and, I, and I wonder, this idea of bringing out the best in us, if you feel disempowered, if you're angry, if you feel separate from the economic or cultural or political mechanisms of power, um, how do we go about that? How do we make in America the people who have fallen under the spell of Trump, who believe in the system again? It's not just bringing out the best in us is, a, is, is the kind of message you might hear in church. I'm not sure if it's going to resonate politically. Well, there are a lot of people who are uh, speaking uh, in this vein presently in the United States, uh, I would say. I think uh, the, the, the viewpoint that, uh, that I'm identifying with here would say, look, we, we have all these institutions that are part of democracy. You know, we have the um, checks and balances. We have, you know, the different branches of government. We have courts. We have laws. We have all these kinds of things. And uh, one of the things that we have learned to our sorrow, I think, is that uh, you can't place complete faith and confidence in the institutions as being sufficient to uh, save the health of our democracy. That every, everything really depends on the quality and the character of the people who are uh, in the positions of authority and who are responsible if they, if they act well for uh, enacting uh, policies and programs that can help to lift up and give everyone uh, as much of a chance as they can at uh, what we sometimes call the American dream. I spent a lifetime in my college teaching doing a course called Perspectives on the American Dream. And uh, much of that of that course and the, the readings and the, 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 the writing that uh, my students and I did in, in thinking about that elusive concept uh, traced back to uh, questions of character and questions of what do we value? What do we really think is important? And of course, there's a side in American life that says, well, the only thing that's really important is what I want and that my privileges and rights should have prerogatives that you know other people don't enjoy. But there's another side in our, in our tradition that says, no, uh, we, we're for equality and fairness and justice and rights for everyone. Uh, and, and that's what I mean when I say, if we act at our best, it's, it's not some you know, uh, pie in the sky sort of thing. It's sort of, do you take seriously what your identity entails if you are an American citizen. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the American dream. Fi final question, um, the, the subtitle of your book is about 
Ukraine and endangered American democracy and the Holocaust. As I mentioned at the beginning, the CIA director is in Kiev right now. Are you linking the Russian invasion of Ukraine with the crisis of American democracy? And in that sense, might there be seeds in your argument and in your school of thinking, John, to suggest that America perhaps has a moral responsibility to support Ukraine? Is there a a little bit of that Cold War thinking which followed the defeat of the Nazis and the rise of the Soviet Union in 1945? There's definitely in our book uh, a defense of American support for Ukraine. And uh, it's because uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine uh, is uh, anti-democratic, and it, 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 it attempts to advance a philosophy, I would say. I think Putin has a philosophy, and uh, it's, it's akin to the philosophy that Hitler held. And the philosophy is that might makes right. If I can do it, we'll do it. And secondly, that my wishes and desires uh, trump everybody else's. And personally, I have despised what Putin has done in Ukraine because it is um, a blatant attempt to uh, impose strength over uh, a weaker uh, opponent, although Putin has learned to his sorrow, I think, that the Ukrainians are by no means as weak as he thought they were. Um, but I found myself, as the Ukraine war broke out and Lenny and I were writing this book, that um, we had to speak on behalf of the Ukrainians because to do that was to speak on behalf of democracy. 